0: Welcome to Our Journey.
1: Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish. Democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union.
2: Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Chris Wolfe, and joining us this week is a special guest, Dr. Kenneth Elmore, the 14th president of Dean College here in our beloved town of Franklin. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And our roundtable of regulars, uh, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's executive director for health and human rights, Dr. Natalia Alinos, our Beacon Hill representative, Jeff Roy, our station manager, Peter J, and my co-host, Nick Remesong. Now, I'm no philosopher, but it seems to me that our shared journey toward a more perfect union will always depend on an educated public that is well-informed enough to make wise decisions. It seems to me to be the foundation of all else, a, a sine qua non, without which there is nothing. Forgive the Latin getting carried away here. And our hometown of Franklin is proud of the contributions it's made to education in America. It's home, of course, to the first public library in the United States, established by the benefaction of none other than Benjamin Franklin himself. Then, our town is the birthplace of Horace Mann, regarded as the founder of public schools in America, who used that library to educate himself well enough to make it into Brown. And, of course, our fair city is home to its own university, Dean College. And we're privileged today to be joined by the 14th president of Dean College, Dr. Kenneth Elmore, to discuss the state of education in America. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be with us today. Well, thank you. Well, let me start with one of the forgotten tenets of Horace Mann from almost 200 years ago that the education system should embrace students of different backgrounds. How are we doing?
3: Well, you know, from my standpoint, higher ed itself has really got to do some tightening up. Um, But I I also wonder if, How much of it is really about what the public perception media is all about than what actually is happening? So media, for example, often tells the story of elite institutions. Uh, We got a a hordes of them in Massachusetts, but we only hear about 12 of them overall. Uh, Even things like the Supreme Court conversations about the more perfect union at our colleges and universities, uh, you know, that's really a conversation about very elite spaces. Here at Dean College, for example, we're dealing a lot with middle class people and lower income people. Uh, We're dealing with about a third of the people here who are uh, what we would call people of color. Uh, We've got a number of students here with disabilities and on the autism spectrum of some sort. And so we've got America here at Dean College. And so I think that that's a story that doesn't get told. And that also affects funding sources, that affects where we put our resources as well. So how are we doing? I think on one hand, higher education is doing doing well, uh, but we are terrible at telling our story and what those impacts might be. Well, First of
4: all, I wanna welcome you, uh, Mr. President, uh, to Franklin and thrilled to have you at Dean College. I've met you on several occasions and just uh, you're a delight to be around. And a real breath of fresh air uh, to the community and love uh, what's happening on that campus. Now, and, fun, funny,
3: uh, my wife never says those kinds of things. So, you know, well, look, at uh, I will talk to her <laughs>
4: and uh, we, we will set her on the right path. A delight and to be, be around. Wow. Happy event. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know the uh, the interesting thing is you know i, I chaired the higher education committee uh, a few sessions ago so i learned a lot uh, about what's happening in the higher ed space in massachusetts and uh you're you're indeed correct for a small state we have 106 colleges and universities in our state and uh they're all doing some real great and unique things and the the Thing that was um, jumped out at me the most was how important institutions were to their communities. Uh, during my tenure, we saw uh, Mount Ida close in Newton, and we saw the devastating impact it had on uh, the students uh, and the community uh, in that area, and the disruption it actually caused in the in the higher education space. And uh, you know, I talk to folks uh, in our community and uh, talk to them just how important it is to have an institution of higher education in your community and just think of uh, what Main Street in Franklin would look like if Dean College was not a part of the community. And, uh, you know, I've told folks time and time again to embrace the uh, the institution participate at the institution go to some of their events meet the folks uh and uh, and I've seen a great deal of outreach from uh you and uh, uh chancellor augustus in t- really trying to bring the community in and that's that's so appreciated and I think it really uh you know embraces that concept of the importance of the institution so do want to give you kudos for that and thank you and uh just urge our listeners to Take part in the opportunities that are available uh, at that college because they welcome you uh, to be a part of that community.
3: That's true, and you know one of the things too, and we've talked about this uh, quite a bit, representative. This idea too that we've got to get so higher education also has got to get more innovative. And one of the things that we're at least I'm seeing and noticing a bit more is how the partnerships got to go both ways. And how we've got to use innovation to try and, of course, do things like bolster our academic programs and um, some of those sorts of things that that have to happen around here, but also how we form these partnerships community wide uh, so that uh, there is this true bringing people in that's not passive. Um, it, it's not just coming to a theater or a show or a lecture. it's also well what what do we make by way of partnerships, say for example, with this public access station uh, that are real true embraces uh what do we do, say for example, with uh the the, the Depot uh, where the train runs uh, right here as well um We've got to do, I think more to be creative and think about those other ways that the community and the college, uh, work together and move forward together uh, because a, a, a terrible downtown Franklin doesn't work for us either. Uh, we want a compelling place for people to come to and we want we want people, uh, young people in the world and older people in this world too, to see that this is a really good, vibrant place and a really creative environment uh,
2: in old New England. So um, meanwhile, I'm now, I'm uh, I'm not an expert in education by any means myself, but I'm considering the arc of uh, our own lives. Our, our ages are kind of on the higher spectrum for some of us. Uh, some of us can even remember segregation and uh, uh, the era of busing through to the joys of standardized testing, training for school shootings, and a world of obscenely high college tuition. So, uh, Dr. Alma, what's been the biggest or most important change in education in your lifetime?
3: Oh, wow. Uh, I've seen a lot of the things that you've mentioned um I mean, heck, my parents were sharecroppers so i I've seen this full on straight up. uh what's been the biggest in my lifetime wow I you know i I certainly would say that um for me from an educational standpoint uh i'm I'm old enough to have gone to a high school that was recently that had been recently um uh uns unsegmented by gender. Uh, it was a boys only environment. So, you know, I saw the early days of that. And uh, that was that was tough, not just for me, but most certainly for uh, the young women who were there. So, you know, I do think that um, a, a bigger integration of of uh, from a from a gender standpoint was one of those things. But I think for me, a huge piece of this was uh, financial aid. And uh, how that affected my life and ability to go to college, Uh, I was in a household where it was real clear that I would have to um, uh, figure out college by myself. We just didn't have that kind of cash. And by the way, that kind of cash, I think I went to college all in uh, for my four-year private experience for about $8,000 total. And I never thought I'd be able to pay it off ever in my life. I I thought it was that kind of money. Um, So I I think that's a, a piece of it. Um, I do think that uh, the fight for um, opening up college admissions, uh, particularly on on the basis of race, gender, and I think now more of a conversation around income has been pretty significant. Um, I also think that in my lifetime too, I've seen more by way of student empowerment. And what I mean by that uh, is the notion that colleges and universities are large enough to matter, And so that means that we can tackle some of the issues that are out there uh, that are important to young people and people in these places. Um, But I just personally, I think that the advent of deep financial assistance for people who were not necessarily veterans or fit into categories was a real boon for higher education.
0: Can I jump in Mm -hmm. on on that, President Elmore? And uh, wonderful to have you on the show today. Um, I'm at Harvard university as uh, at a center, but I actually grew up in Greece and, you know, several European countries, including Greece, have free uh, higher education. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my parents both went to medical school. My mom is the daughter of a, a baker and her mom never went to school. She got through medical school, actually came to the Harvard school of public health for her master's degree. Mm-hmm. And it was free and it was really a stepping stone for, for both my parents. My father's dad was a refugee from Turkey and really that free education enabled them to build a completely different life for themselves and i know right now the supreme court is hearing arguments you know challenging president biden's student debt relief plan but i feel like it's so fundamental that higher education is the path through which when we talk about the american dream and really being able to uh provide a better future and you know for people to st- step up I worry that it's not really true. It is in countries where you have free education that you are actually living the American dream, and not not here because of these real financial barriers um, that are clearly racialized and clearly also, you know, there are overlays. Um, so I'm I'm really glad that you brought up financial aid, and I think that we can even go further. We can be pushing for you know a new agenda for what would universal. I don't know if it, if we can ever get there to free. And as as a mom of little kids, I also you know believe that the universal pre K is is a top top priority because that is a huge, um, you know we have to tie the two together. You can't have a higher education if you don't start kids off on the right, right path. But really, mm-hmm. thank you for for highlighting that transformative you know the financial aid piece as being transformative to to you and to others.
3: Well, one of the things that's really interesting about that too is that. Um, if you think about where we are now, education has gotten, I mean, just the, the, the public look at education has gotten incredibly broad and nearly free. Um, there are people who believe that you can do this through YouTube, and there are also entities out there that are doing similar kind of work to what I do in terms of granting certifications and degrees. I mean, look at what, what's happening with Google, for example. Um, so, you know, that's one of those things that we've got to look at too, is what do we want from an education? Uh, a lot of, a lot of education in other places, other than the Americas, it's about classes and that's it, right? We have done this thing over time, uh, over history, you know, the history where it's also about place and it's about people in those places and the sorts of social supports, I think, quite frankly. You know, there's a, there's an element of social work that I've got to do, and that's expensive. And that's where your costs are just phenomenal. And trying to hold those costs down, you know, in, in this, for me, in this workplace, is really important. But also, I think the American society, we need to all have a conversation about what we really want from our educational experiences. Um, and, and right now, it, it, there's this flattening, I think, that's going on where institutions like mine and others, where there's this idea that maybe because of space, it's also about the networking. It's also about getting into that next place where you want to be. And that's going to affect the cost, whether or not you do it via YouTube and Google, or whether or not you come to a place in person and really engage it uh, overall. I still think there's going to be a need and a work for that. But it's going to be very, very interesting. And especially, and maybe we will get to this at some point, but especially where one of the things that I've got to look at doing is how I put Dean College in the metaverse uh, and the next iterations of the internet. That's got to be an important piece, too. I just want
5: to bring up, uh, I'm particularly touching on uh, the aspect of age. I went to college in the 70s. Uh, The cost was, at the time, I mean, looking back on it, of course, it was relatively inexpensive. I mean, it was more than relatively inexpensive. But what I did in order to pay for it myself, I never took out a student loan and student loans were available at that time. Many don't believe that, but they were. But um, I would go to school for a year, two semesters and then work. And I became really in the process of doing that, a mature student. And I think it helped me a great deal in what I decided finally to do with my degree and what I how I decided to structure my studies in college, in university. And it was a little difficult then because they, they weren't aiming towards, universities at the time were all almost 100% geared towards that high school senior, not towards mature students, not towards students who were coming in, going out, coming back in, going out, coming back in. It was always a chore to get back in, even though I was going to the same school. I went to George Washington University, and I'd never changed schools. I never changed my major, but it was difficult to get in and out. I don't know that that's still the case. Now, of course, the cost then was probably, I think, with a full full course load of 15 hours, I think it probably was no more than $1,500. I did not live on campus. So, of course, that's a big chunk set aside. But I had commuting. I commuted in from the suburbs in Maryland. But yeah, it's it, it's it's more, I think what we need to look at with the cost in order to defray that somewhat is to look at something where it's more, I mean, we've got cooperatives. We've got Northeastern, one of the great cooperative country, uh, schools in this country where you do have a work-study type of program. And I think that has to be broadened. Uh, in, in other words, I wasn't working when I was, When I was working and out of school, I was not working in my field of study. So it has to be something where you have to be given some credit for what you're doing Mm -hmm. That and to defray costs, but also to give you a broader outlook. I mean, during that time, I was traveling and I was out of the country for a while. And it just it gave me a, a broader viewpoint of when I went back to school of what I was looking at. And when I came out, I was much more prepared for the job market. I, you know, it had to reapply, apply and reapply, apply and reapply many times over. So I knew the, you know, the interview stat, you know, the, how to interview, what that was going to be like, and what would best serve my purposes. So something along the lines of practical interviewing on a freshman course as opposed to, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know, intro to college life.
3: Well, you know, Nick, you you raised this really, uh, a bunch of really important points. And, uh, you know, most certainly we've got to look at those uh, non-academic, non-technical kinds of skills called being a human being and how that works and fits in. And, and, you know, part of that too is dealing with people. I mean, I'm working in this place that's Byzantine, right? The mentality is that I sit up on this high chair in in this office overlooking a bucolic space. Um, And and we've got to change a mindset where we are saying as professors, as advisors, let me tell you how this is important to your life, right? This class, let me explain to you how this particular class, I don't care what it is, by the way, is important to some sort of set of skills or things that are going to do you well in life in graduate school or in work. The other piece too that's really important too that you mentioned as well. Uh I want to put business on the hook for a second here. Um you know co-ops require two things and here it is going back to that that college uh in community partnership. You know we need places for people to do co-ops and also business has to put a level of confidence uh, but also, they've got to know what they want in terms of hiring people. Uh, we've got to make sure that a person who is in college sees that there is a real legitimate path for them after they leave, whether it's graduate school uh, or whether it's in in a workspace. And there's got to be very real opportunity for them and business uh, or or nonprofits, whatever it might be, but outside of these places have to say, yep, we're serious about bringing you on. We're serious about giving you a spot to co-op. And if you do what what works well, we will we'll bring you on, or we're serious about hiring you. But we also are going to be serious about letting you know what those skills are in our workplace that are really important that you should make sure that you learn. I think there's a lot of wishy-washiness that goes on where business says, well, they don't have the skills we need to work. And I I ask people when they say that, well, what are those skills for your workspace? I would Is
1: like to chime not- in here uh, because um, I have a relationship, as, as Dr. Elmore and I have discussed, between Franklin TV, uh, Franklin Radio, and the school. I, I am in regular correspondence. I get together on a frequent basis with uh, the teachers who handled their radio station, their broadcasting program, their visual arts program. Um, and Dr. Elmore and I have had an extensive discussion about it early on. But and, and in that, I related something interesting. I stated that, well, for one thing, when I was running a commercial production studio and I would get uh, CVs, resumes from students, I had a short list of schools that I knew had properly prepared the students there were some students who sent you know resumes from school a and i said okay these kids are ready their life experience to some extent is already baked in they know what is expected of them from an employer uh those those uh human being qualities those work ethic qualities all of the things that are necessary for them to 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 strive and to excel are there then there are some schools where that is almost completely absent. And in the worst of cases, students show up thinking that somehow or other I owe them because they went to this or that elite school. And it's <laughs> and you know, I don't do anything one way or the other. I just know that they're really not prepared to come here. And so my feedback is valuable to the people who are teaching at Dean, and we talk about this all the time. And the good news is that they are industry professionals. They have experience in the world, just like I do. They are peers. I can talk to them about what's going on in the industry back and forth, and we are on equal footing. And so the students that they produce, inherit some of that while they're at the school, which is a wonderful thing. So I'm looking forward to working with this year's uh, dean intern this summer. Um, I'm already looking at high expectations because I've met her, I've interviewed her, and I think she's going to be great. So we, between us and Dean, we are focusing on how do we make a robust connection between the real world and what they're experiencing at the school in terms of their exposure to the communication arts, uh, and we talk about that every year. And and so uh, we've got some we've got some momentum built up, which I think is adding to the curriculum nicely.
6: Let me contribute something that is actually a large scale, uh, not just an experiment, but a revamping of higher education. One of my, or actually my main client, uh, the state of Alabama, is taking everything that you guys are talking about codifying it and then putting it into its public institutions. Let me give you an example. When you were talking, Nick, about the going in and out of school and the trouble you had there, we have built the whole system in Alabama called career pathways. Those career pathways are codified. So that if you came in and said, okay, I wanna be a systems engineer and you're a freshman, but life happens and you had to leave. When you came back, the people in the career and professional services say, okay, where, where were you, Nick? you're here, you've got these credits, even if you took credits at other places are able to plug those in, and then put you back on that pathway. And let's say, for example, you wanted to change pathways, you then we have crosswalks, where and this is a statewide effort. And I guess what I'm saying is, is that a college like Dean, is in some ways a product of its environment, because I don't see Massachusetts making those kinds of major structural professional career changes. When you talk about, Pete, for example, the idea that there are internships and then there are professors and then there's the industry, we're bringing the industry professionals, the professors together and then codifying what are the skills that you folks, who are the industry experts, are looking for in this particular job. Uh, as a matter of fact, the project is called the Dakum Project. We just had one of our first adventures in terms of doing this kind of codification. They've been in business for well over 60 years. So it's possible for us to rethink higher ed. And I think that's what I'm hearing from uh Uh, uh, from you, uh, uh, Kenneth, is this idea that you cannot do things the way that we've done them and expect that you're going to be competitive, either as a university or help your students to navigate this new world. And then the third part of that that I'll throw out there uh, and uh, sort of have you react to, which is this idea that there is a lifelong learning aspect that before we used to think, OK, you get your B.A. degree, you go get a master's degree and maybe that's the end of it. Baked. Y- yeah. <laughs> OK. Or you go ahead and get do like myself and you just get it piled higher and deeper. OK, as we used <laughs> to say about the about the Ph.D., but that's no longer the case. Even for a me, a, you know, a person like me in education. I have to keep up with not only my field, but also the innovations that are taking place. Technology has changed everything. When you're talking about YouTube or Zoom, I never would have considered standing in front of a class that's not in front of me, physically in front of me. And yet that is part of what happens now in the whole scheme of higher ed. And I'm so glad and looking forward to, as a Franklin resident working with you, uh, President Elmore, to make sure that if we in Franklin can sustain, because you're one of the real cornerstones of our community. I mean, you're one of the jewels because not only are you an employer, but I think you bring value to our community because of the diversity of your students, what you contribute to the community in terms of that diversity. So welcome to Franklin, too, by the way.
3: Glad to be here for sure. And I think we're going to grab a cup of coffee pretty soon. I'm excited about it. Uh, and, you know, and I'm excited about it, too, because in some ways, in some ways, uh, there are such similarities with HBCUs uh, in terms of community, community engagement, how important that institution is to the community in terms of, I mean, a lot of times people don't realize this, but HBCUs have to experiment a lot more with modalities, uh, not just the content. And and by the way, that's something I think higher ed is going to have to do more of. Content is there. Modality is what we've really got to look at a lot more. And you know, certainly, here at Dean, that's been the message that I've been putting out there. It's about the modality of how we do it. You know, uh, we've also got to look at these ways, as you you've said, uh, Dr. Walker. We've got to look at people's lives. Uh, higher Ed has always looked at people's lives, but we've also got to look at the way that lives change and be really agile to deal with that. Um, so that's where a three-year degree might be the the thing that's got to be the next move that's where maybe it's about stacking multiple certificates together to get where you want to go that's the the other piece too when i talk about modalities individuals now are expecting a level of customization in terms of their educational experiences like never before every individual student i get coming in here has a different path that they want for how they get their education, how they do Dean, how they do Franklin. It's it's highly individualized.
0: Can I ask a question about that individualized nature? And, and, you know, I do feel that students are coming in with very kind of niche interests, but then we know that in the future, they may change jobs multiple times that it's not. So I, I feel like there's a mismatch between kind of trying to specialize in a way and be unique in your education and then knowing that you may have to job change jobs that are vastly might require very different skill sets. And so I'm a generalist. So I, I kind of push back and sort of encourage them to to become more generalists. But what's your view about that sort of tension?
3: Well you know I think that's where we've also got to look at once again the the community in Employer, workforce, and institutions of higher education. On some levels, we're all, we're all have we all have to be in the business of education. And we've got to find this way to make sure that there is the this cycle uh that's that's that works for us all, knowing full well that the education also has to happen in the workplace. And we can be experts and we should be experts in being able to help with that, because I, I just don't think that we've matured enough as a society to see that a lifetime investment in education is really what you got to do. In the same way that you save for a house, in the same way that you you change your car and and you do those sorts of things, you got to also say to yourself, what's the kind of investment in my education that I need given what I want to do with my life? And given where I see, hopefully, uh, that I'm educated enough also to see uh, that there are changes in the world society that require me to try something a little bit different. And I might have to go... And, and get online and take a course, or I might have to put 12 hours in uh, or an hour in here or there, but I'm going to have to always invest
6: in my education, my personal education. And Natalia, you're, you're absolutely right, and you're really not on the margin when it comes to talking about what are the skills and competencies that a student need? And is it for a specific job or is it for something that might be a little broader? And again, let me sort of refer back to some of the experiment we're going through in Alabama. It is a belief that every single program, that every single one of our students from the University of Alabama to Alabama State University to Stillman College has to have some type of experiential learning experience. And that grows from just, it may be just the ability to walk into a company and look around on an official basis and see what it is that people do so that you might be able to narrow it down to a job that I might be able to either qualify for or be offered in this company to something highly specific, which we refer to as a registered apprenticeship that's the sort of gold standard, if you will, where a company hires you, you know, you want to do that job. And then the company says, we're going to train you from now until you leave this company and how to move from where you are now to the next level of that job to the next job. And so your career pathway inside of the company has been set not necessarily because of the college that you went to, but because of the skills and competencies that that company wants to invest in you. And what I'm finding is is that the college faculty, the administrations, the community, the industries, and don't forget, in Alabama right now, we've got three major industries. We've got airplane and chip building. We've got rocket building uh, and we have auto manufacturing. Those are the big heavy ones. But we've also got everything in between. And we've gone to those employers and said to them, hey, we've got some students at Dean. You tell us what the competencies are of the jobs that are coming open. We go over to Dean and we say, uh, Mr. Elmore, Uh, we need these students with these competencies. You then go to the faculty and say, how do we line up with those competencies? We get everyone talking together, and then we find the students who are taking those courses and then putting them out there in internship, in apprenticeships, in every type of experimental work-based learning experiences we can gather for these folks And I'm telling you, it's taking off, you know, like a rocket.
4: So, Michael, I I want to follow up on that and tell you a few exciting things that we're doing here in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, one of them, and uh, this was a a byproduct of the clean energy and offshore wind bill that was signed by the governor in uh, August of 2022. And uh, a provision that was included in there was a requirement that the secretary of labor, Produce a list of the top ten occupational needs in Massachusetts, and then they had a, to send that list to the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. And taking that list, DESE is going to uh, provide a financial incentive to schools to provide a credential in those particular fields, identifying uh, where we, where we have the needs. And you know, Massachusetts has Manufacturing and and uh, biochemistry uh, and biomechanical engineering. We have the wide spectrum, so that's going to be a useful tool. And the other piece that uh, you know I've been working on for several years now, and hopefully, I did get the legislation through the House of Representatives last session. Hopefully, we're going to get it through uh, both branches this uh, session. But it's a a college and high school bill that will give. Uh, students in high school an opportunity to get college credits before they get the diploma. Because we know that in Massachusetts, 72% of the jobs require a credential beyond a high school diploma. Doesn't necessarily mean a bachelor's degree, but some sort of credential. And I think as a matter of equity, we have to provide those opportunities uh, to our students. And, uh, you know, I'm encouraged by uh, what I see. Uh, At Dean, I know that uh, I've spoken to the chancellor about these early college opportunities, because right now our early college opportunities are centered uh, in our community colleges, and there are 15 of them across the state, but we don't really have a close connection physically geographically with a community college here in Franklin. Uh, but we have a great private institution right here in uh, Franklin, Massachusetts. And we're going to try to spread that early college opportunity uh, with a private institution. So uh, working with Dean, working with uh, ACOM on that particular prospect. And and my final piece, because uh, I know early Ed came up in Natalia's uh, piece and. I had the opportunity to go to uh, Dean uh, just last week, as a matter of fact, with the Commissioner of Early Education, came out to see uh, the early education program that uh, Dean College is offering. And uh, I was amazed at uh, the number of students who are participating in that program, their commitment and passion to early education, and the great need that we have in the Commonwealth uh, so much so that uh, we are investing Money and 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 other resources into developing a robust early education uh, program, and uh, it was nice to see that Dean College is at the forefront. So those are my uh, few observations. Actually, I did have one other observation. I wish the viewers at home could see how happy uh, Michael Walker Jones looks. I don't know what's going on down there in Montgomery, uh, Alabama, but I've never seen you so bright and uh and, and engaged and smiling and i was gonna uh, say the same
2: thing there you well, go I
6: wish the viewers well, could see this well i mean well, the listeners could see this well thank you very much listen i'll go ahead and make the announcement now because actually uh Uh, President Elmore let the uh, let the cat out of the bag. I've taken a new. uh, I've actually taken a position. I'm no longer just a consultant. I've taken a position with the Alabama uh, HBCU Consortium, and now from a nonprofit organization, I'm able to help to move this whole concept of revamping higher education along. And so I'm very excited about the work that's laid out in front of me. And as a matter of fact, uh, Jeff, not only are you one of my uh, well, you are my favorite legislative member in the Massachusetts legislature. Uh, <laughs> legislature, <laughs> uh, but there's also this idea too that we have a czar in Alabama. Massachusetts does it—that's coordinating and bringing all of these departments together and then holding everyone's feet, feet to the fire. So it's not just the Department of Labor, for example, looking at the top ten jobs that are in demand. We have over 500 career paths that the Department of Labor have had identified from the most in-demand high wage to the most in-demand but not necessarily high wage. We've taken that list, we've spread it out to all of the industries who actually helped to contribute to that. We've spread that list to the, uh, uh, to the universities which are comparing that list to the programs they have. We've also collected a list of the certificate areas. So again, like President Elmo, we're talking about. We have not only legislation, but the Alabama Commission on Higher Education that used to be my consul- uh, uh, that used to be my client as a consultant now has as part of their approval process a mechanism where you have to, as a university, tell AKE. How this particular degree program not only fits into a career path, what are the uh, experiential learning experiences that one will experience through that degree, but also what are the various opportunities within your sphere of influence, your mission uh, region, if you will, what are the uh, of the jobs that are open for the next 10 years? The next thing we're doing is making sure that the faculty, as well as the industries, are communicating with one another to look at are we updating our programs to the immediate and future needs of the company? It's the Department of Commerce, the Department of Labor, uh, the governor's office, our higher education office, our K 12 office, all come together uh, at least once a month. uh, And hopefully, uh, uh, Jeff, uh, and some of the others from our system will be able to go down and see one of the culminations of an award system uh, that's in Alabama back, uh, in May, where we showcase those partnerships in particular, the industries and the schools that have these work-based learning programs and what are the ones that are exemplary. The reason I am absolutely adamant and so happy because I want to try to preach this gospel in Massachusetts because I think we have the potential to try to grow this kind of, of system much faster than what we did in Alabama, but at the same time with the same level of quality and enthusiasm. And that's why I'm so happy that that Dean uh, since I can just walk down the street and see uh, President Elmore and say, "Hey, how are you guys doing on this piece?" Um, and then bring some of that knowledge to Massachusetts, I'm real happy that, you know, I could be at least a part of two systems, Alabama and Massachusetts, and I think working together and partnering with some of those things, That's why you see the glow on my face. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the position that I'm in, the uh, executive director of the HBCU consortium, puts me in a position where I have to work at all three levels, federal, state and local. And I get to work with all of those wonderful historically black uh, colleges and universities in Alabama, which I will promote and say that Alabama has more HBCUs than any other state. And so I'm just happy to be a part of that. That's why you see the glow on my face, if you will. Um,
1: I wanna, I'd want i like to hearken back a little bit to something that uh, Dr. Elmore and I discussed briefly uh, when we first met, and that is, the, quite frankly, in, in cases of like communications, the communication arts and so on, uh, where you're looking at craft skills as well as general knowledge, it's a real challenge for schools to get out the crystal ball and predict where the industry is going to be in five and 10 years. What are the trends? What's going away? What's rising? What is the impact of technology? Uh, by example, I can tell you that what I learned when I first got into this business Maybe 10% of it is applicable today, if that, uh, in a sort of a general way. But I had to learn new skills along the way. Um, And that continues even now. I still have to learn new skills as long as I've been in this business. But on top of that, uh, I also know that the humanities, arts, language, the communication skills, the ability to be a human being, those things endure those things are a constant within an ever-changing technical world and as time has gone by i have understood to a greater and greater extent the ability to be able to communicate effectively to be on point and to understand the narrative of what's going on around me and how it is that i can move it in the direction it needs to go Uh, and that requires not only you know obviously considerable experience but i think that schools can flag that as a skill set and and really lean into it as a way of making sure that not only do you address the how, how did things happen, but why did they think happen? Uh, Diane Ravick at Columbia, uh, a great teacher and historian said, those who know how will always have a job. Those who know why will always be in charge. And I love that quote. Mm-hmm.
5: <laughs> well, no, and, not, and I have and to agree with that longer. specifically because, I mean, my degree, full disclosure, is in English literature, which uh, <laughs> I yeah, Michael's rather happy about that. You know, I can see. Um, but yes, I think it, the, the liberal arts are, I mean, they've been dismissed in this past several years uh, as a real groundling for what most people need. But I think they still remain the basis from which you build yeah. because I've always felt that if you can read and you can think critically, you're way ahead of the game. And that is what you're taught when you're taught how to read and think mm. critically. Exactly. One of, the great, one of the greatest textbooks I ever went, I ever used was IA Richards, you know, a uh, book on critical think, critical thinking. And it was a course he taught at Harvard for many, many years, practical criticism. How do you interpret a ter- uh, a text and how do you how do you back up your interpretation of that interpretation? So it's it's something that I think needs to be the basis. And you can build from there into something, almost
3: anything. Now, by the way, there's a great uh, piece. It's very lengthy uh, in the in New Yorker right now. It's called The End of the English Major. It's worth a read, but it's a very, very long, mm-hmm. long yeah, I've seen piece. It. I mm-hmm. think it's about 30 pages. But. Here here again is what I'm talking about. Of course, we're not going to sleep on the English major, but what's, what's going to happen is it's incumbent upon people like me to organize us better, right? We're, I, I don't want to go the way of manufacturing, a lot of manufacturing in this society. You think about a lot of manufacturing. Uh, it stayed organized the same way, and technology and everything else overtook it to make it obsolete. And when I say obsolete, meaning your workers weren't ready to change, um and and neither was the whole institution. Part of what I've got to do is to say, no, we're still going to teach English. It's just that we've got to organize ourselves as faculty in different ways. You know, it, it's not being organized around you can't organize around an English department anymore. But what you got to do and you know, you heard the representative say this, um, you know, we we probably have to organize ourselves as faculty around energy, right? You think about that. It, it, someone coming out with a major in energy, they're going to get their liberal arts because you have to. They're going to get their business. They're going to get their science as a part of that. War. We could organize around war. We can organize around, oh, wow, um, water, around community, around global health, around Human rights, all these kinds of things pull in every facet of what we teach in these places. But it means that, you know, I've got to get people who have been really siloed because that's the nature of a PhD or terminal degree around us in a certain bin. We send you down a certain bin and say that's where your expertise is and that's where you got to be. And I've got to say these folks, great, but you've got to be together in a department, not with other English people teach in English, you had to be in a department with people talking about energy because people are still going to need to write who are dealing with these sorts of fields. And even so we want to inspire our students to be those people who know as much about
2: the why as the how. Dr. Omar, thank you. that's a very good point, Tess. As I'm sure you know, we could talk endlessly about uh, education and the struggle for us to reach a more perfect union. But for now, another more perfect hour has flown by, and we have to say goodbye until next week. And Dr. Elmo, we look forward to you you joining us again in the future. What a blast. I hope so. Thank you. If you'd like to uh, the public now, you, you listeners out there, uh would like to weigh in on our discussions. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. If you disagree, all the more reason to uh, let us know. You can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online. Just visit our website, wfpr.fm. Special thanks again to our guest, Dr. Kenneth Elmore, president of Dean College. And to Dr. Natalia Linos, Dr. Michael Walker Jones, our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, station manager Peter J., and my co-host Nick Remesong, I'm Chris Wolfe. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.